And there were the security people and the police like you wouldn't believe, with dogs going through the cathedral regularly to make sure that no one had left any bombs around about. And there was a lockdown the night before and police actually staying in the premises overnight. And, and to say nothing of the way the police were hiding themselves all around the place. There were police here, there and everywhere as part from mingling within the crowd. And you could pick them because they had these funny things running down from their... Their, their ears into their coats and their coats were bulging in most extraordinary ways and places and, and all this was for the umpteenth visit of the Queen. Uh, she has been to this cathedral itself three or four times in her reign but she's been to Sydney in Australia how many times and although those of us who are old enough will remember her first visit where the triumphal arches were built over the streets and the crowds lined up and Every move she made, everybody knew about it. Nothing else was spoken of or done for, for weeks beforehand, during and afterwards. Huge crowds turning up to see when the royal visit finally came. Now when Jesus, who rules in an empire slightly larger than the British Empire and continually uh, one that's going to last a lot longer than the British Empire... When Jesus, the king of the universe, came with the kingdom of God, the man in charge of preparations was John the Baptist. And that's who we read about in Matthew chapter 3 on page 975 today. John was a public figure in first century Israel. We read about John in the New Testament here, but you can actually read about him outside of the New Testament as well, in the history of the Jews written by the, uh, the Pharisaic uh, Jew of the later first century Josephus, he recounts John the Baptist because John was a public figure of the time. And John's ministry was a major event in the time of Jesus. Thousands went out to hear this prophet as he baptised in the wilderness. He was called the baptizer. For this distinctive demand of people to be baptised, it was not known in the Old Testament, it was not known before John. Uh, he was, by the way, not a Baptist in the sense of belonging to a particular denomination called the Baptist Church or the Union of Baptist Churches. He was just the one who introduced the concept of baptism within the Bible. And yet while he was baptising and his baptism was distinctive, it really was his preaching that was important. For this was his real role. He was the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets who happens to be in the New Testament. And his preaching bore a single important message. The kingdom of heaven is coming. So get ready by repentance. In today's passage, in chapter 3, verse 2, we read the summary of his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And his preaching fulfilled the prophecy in the Old Testament of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40 we read, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. He was that voice in the wilderness, preparing the way, the way of the Lord. Now chapter 40 in Isaiah is a critical turning point in the book of Isaiah. Chapters 1 to 39 is dominated by the sense of the judgment of God that comes. But there is great news in chapter 40. 
Suddenly in chapter 40, there is the declaration that the warfare is over, that God is coming to rescue his people again, like, like a new exodus in, in the wilderness. Uh, he will meet them and bring them out of slavery, and he will carry them again to the promised land. And so we read in Isaiah 40, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Here was the great news of comfort for the people of Israel and the people of Judah, who had lived for centuries under the punishment of God and were at the time that Isaiah is speaking of going to be sent into captivity in Babylon. And now, hundreds of years later, John comes with this message. He is the voice in the wilderness that Isaiah 40 predicted, declaring the great day of salvation, declaring the great news of forgiveness, declaring the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And not only was John fulfilling prophecy, but he himself was also the prophet. He dressed and acted like a prophet. So verse 4, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. It's a description that would fit Elijah in the Old Testament. Elijah is described as a hairy man with a leather belt. It's a kind of funny description. It's always amused me as to think how much hair he needed that all he needed was a leather belt as well. And what the leather belt did in keeping on the hair has never made much sense to me. But there is the concept of Elijah, a wild man, dressed in rough, living in the wilderness, dressed and eating food that was the wilderness food, locusts, wild honey. And like Elijah, he would enter into conflict with a weak and wicked king. And like Elijah, he entered into contact, uh, conflict with an even more powerful queen, the wife of the, hus- uh, of, the, of the weak king. But it's reasonable to ask of any prophet, why are you popular? Because the characteristic of a true prophet is that he's not popular. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. Prophets are supposed to be unpopular. It's false prophets who enjoy popularity. But John was extraordinarily popular. His message and preaching drew huge crowds, extraordinary crowds of people. Verse 5, we read, And then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And not only popular, but also effective. Most of the prophets of the Old Testament, people don't listen to them. But the people listen to John the Baptist. So we read in verse 6, And they were baptised by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. He called for a baptism of repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. And the people came confessing their sins. Whatever we ever want to think about baptism, the person who started baptisms was John, and John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. It's not a formal religiosity, but the public confession of sins that baptism was about. It was not part of the normal Jewish religious experience, this baptism. But the confessions of sin was what the nation needed to do in order to prepare itself for the coming of the kingdom of heaven. This was the people of God. And they were more concerned with 
God than their own pride because they publicly professed their sins. They were more concerned with God than they were with other people and what other people might think of them. Uh, Friends, we will never know God ourselves while we want to be thought well of by other people. We'll never find God's forgiveness while we hide our sinfulness from humans, while we pretend to others and to God and even to ourselves that we are not sinful. The New Testament says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The knee-jerk reaction of every sinful person is cover-up. That's what we always do with sin. Hide, pretend, deny, rationalise. But the only way of actually dealing with sin is bringing it out into the open, is to confess it and bring it to God for forgiveness. John was a true prophet. But as a true prophet then, he was also not popular. He wasn't popular with everybody. You see, he was a true prophet in a sinful world and he was hated and despised by those in power and authority, by those who were unrepentant. So when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to see this prophet, when they came to be baptised with everybody else, John let fly with one of the greatest denunciations in the whole Bible. Verse 7, where he says, You brood of vipers. I have never heard a preacher call the congregation a brood of vipers. I'm waiting for the opportunity though I'd prefer to be the preacher than one of the congregation when you are called that. I mean, it's a powerful way. You bunch of snakes. Who brought you out here into the desert to be baptised? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This was John preparing the way of the coming of the Lord. For the two elements to his preparation, one, the announcement of the coming of the Lord, and two, calling upon people to repent to be ready by repentance, to get themselves ready by dealing with their sins, to repent, genuinely repent. And so by declaring the coming of the kingdom and calling upon the nation to repent, he was preparing the way for the coming of the Lord, Jesus the Christ. Now that was the heart of John's message. It was the coming of the kingdom of heaven. For centuries the Jews had been waiting for justice and mercy and salvation, waiting for the fulfilment of the promises of God, waiting for the coming of God's kingdom on earth. When David's son would reign, when David's throne would be set up in Jerusalem for all nations, for all time, now at last it was to happen. And the prophet John was saying, now is the moment. The moment has arrived. And the appropriate response to such a message was to repent. 
That's the opening word of his message in verse 2. So let's be clear about what this repentance involves. For repentance is not a feeling. It's not feeling sorry. It's not regretting. It's not apologising. It's not remorse. It's not regretting about being caught out. The word today is used for all those different meanings and yet none of them is what the Bible is talking about. There are elements that you can have. You may feel very sorry when you repent. You may feel sorry about the sin you're repenting of. You may feel sorry when you are in the act of repenting. You may even feel sorry after you've repented that you actually went through it. But feeling sorry is not what repentance is. And apologising is not what repentance is, especially that phony apology which says, I'm sorry that I've upset you, which doesn't say I'm sorry for what I did. It just says I'm sorry for upsetting you. I'd do it again tomorrow, especially if you weren't going to get upset by it. Now, just apologising is not it. Repentance is a change of mind. It's that genuine change of mind that changes your way of life. I shouldn't live that way. I shouldn't have done that. From here on in, I'm going to be different. I'm going to live differently. And so repentance is that rejection of our past behaviour, our past way of life, and embracing a new, different way of life. I, I used to play cricket. I loved playing cricket. I enjoyed playing cricket, but one day I grew up. And when I grew up, I repented of my playing cricket. Now, because I repented of playing cricket, I got rid of my cricket gear. I mean, if today I was called up to play for the national team, and occasionally we do need someone to be called up for it, I don't have a bat, I don't have a ball, I don't have any whites, I don't have any, well, greens or whatever you've got to wear now, I don't have any cricket boots, I don't have any because I've repented. I have renounced that way of life which absolutely consumed me as a teenager and I now live a different way of life without it. There's some people though that repent, they say I'm not going to do that anymore but I'll just keep the, I'll keep the gear there in case I need it. And of course, that's not repentance in the end, is it? Repentance is to say, I've given up that way of life and I'm now doing that which is different. The way the word is used in modern English, according to our dictionaries, because that's all dictionaries do, they define how people use the word, reflects the failure of our community to understand repentance, let alone to actually repent. The dictionaries all say repentance is feeling sorry. Well, you can feel sorry all the day long, but that doesn't mean that you've changed anything, does it? That doesn't mean you've given it up, that you're starting differently. Sorrow, grief, even remorse about something still doesn't mean you've repented. It's the decision of your mind and heart that is seen in practice and outcome. It's that total rejection of what you have done with the deliberate intention of doing differently in the future. And so the people of Judah and Jerusalem came down to John in the River Jordan and were baptised by John, symbolising the repentance, washing away the past, rejecting it completely, openly, publicly confessing, I used to be that but I'm not anymore. I wish to be washed clean for the forgiveness of sins. I don't like 
question about tattoos. I think tattoos, well, I won't go into it, at least you've got a tattoo secretly hidden in your anatomy there and you don't want me to offend you, but I think tattoos are weird. I can't understand why people tattoo their bodies. Uh, but I heard the other day of some people in northern England, where I was, who got tattoos that made sense to me. The group of people who had become Christians recently tattooed Jesus on their arms because they said we're going to be different from here on in and the change we're making is a permanent change and because it's a permanent change we want a permanent sign on our bodies that we are Jesus' people now. That made sense to me, although I'd still not do it and not encourage you to do it. But it was the first time I've ever heard somebody say, it makes sense, because that's always the problem. You put the girlfriend's name on and then she drops you. And you've got her name there forever, which you've got to explain to every other girl you go out with, unless you can find one with the same name. And, I mean, it's a terrible thing, isn't it? But you see, this this sense of repentance. I used to live for myself, I now live for Jesus. That's the repentance that is being spoken of. And this repentance is a reality. It's not just a symbolism. It's not just a religious formalism. For when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to baptism by John, John would have none of them. They were happy enough to be baptised, even though it may involve some loss of dignity, it was still something they thought they should do going through the rites of passage, establishing one's religious acceptability is something you can see in every age and in every religion and it's hypocrisy and it always needs to be denounced as the hypocrisy that it is, even in the vigorous terms of John. You brood of vipers, who warned you from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and don't just pretend, don't presume Firstly, notice the failure of genuine repentance. And that failure is seen in lack of fruit. Real repentance will mean real change of life, and real change of life will always be visible. If you repent but still live the same way as you were before, then you haven't repented. A change in mind that leads to no change in life is not a change in mind at all. The repentance is about a changed life, no longer doing what you used to do, now living differently. And so John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Secondly, notice, he addresses the reason for their failure to repent. They had their confidence, their assurance, not in God's merciful forgiveness, but in their own standing before him, in the pedigree of their ancestry, leading back to Abraham. They felt they would be acceptable for they were the children of Abraham. I'm Abraham's great-great-great-great-grandson and therefore I am one of God's people and I will have automatic citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. But this is not confidence and assurance in God. This is presumption and arrogance in your own birth. Verse 9, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as as our father. I tell you, God can raise up out of the very stones of the wilderness children to Abraham. It's God who makes the family of Abraham, not you. And God could make this stone into into a child of Abraham if he wished to. So don't pride yourself or take comfort in your ancestry. What you've got to do is repent. Friends, this is a withering and devastating attack on all human presumption. The people of Judah 
were the chosen nation of God. They were God's nation. They were the seed of Abraham. If they can't rely upon their background to be acceptable to a God, then nobody else can either. You might be proud of the fact that you are Chinese or that you are Korean or that you're English or Scottish or Irish, etc. And I'm glad you enjoy and rejoice in your ancestry, but don't think it impresses God. It doesn't. And it will not. These people were responding to the true prophet's call. They were coming to the Jordan to be baptised by John, but their baptism was not acceptable to God. Because their baptism was not an expression of repentance. And it's repentance that is called upon. So often Australian Christians often think we are members of a church dedicated, baptised or baptised and confirmed depending where you've come from and we've done all that could be asked of us. We've, we've gone through the religious rites and rituals and therefore, therefore nothing. If the people of Judah coming for baptism were not fit for the kingdom of heaven... If the people of God's chosen nation responding to the call of the prophet to be baptised were not fit for the kingdom of heaven, then our Anglican pedigree, or Presbyterian, Orthodox, Catholic, Baptist or Calathumpian, our credentials are not worth the ink written on the baptismal certificate. What John was calling for was not some religious symbolism or sacrament but a reality, the reality of a repentant, changed life that comes from confessing our sins, pleading to God for mercy and forgiveness and resolving to renounce sinfulness and to live a different life from here on in. And anything less will face the judgment of God that comes with the kingdom of heaven. For listen how John describes what is coming in verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. If we do not genuinely change, then the judgment of God is what we will face. For while the Jews look forward to the salvation that would come with Christ in the kingdom of heaven, John was warning them of the judgment that will come with Christ in the kingdom of heaven. I baptise you, verse 11, with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And like the Pharisees and like the Sadducees of old, we too can be so eager for the salvation of the kingdom of heaven, we too can be so presumptuous about our place in the kingdom that in reality we face judgment, not salvation, when Christ should come. For John's Messiah brings both judgment and salvation when he comes in his kingdom. And John says, after me comes one who is much greater than I. Uh, usually the leader is out the front. 
and the followers come behind. Usually the teacher is out the front and the followers follow him, the disciples follow him. Usually the younger serves the elder, but not this time. This time the leader is about to come. He's behind me. He's the next one to arrive. This time the elder is going to serve the younger. And the gulf between John and the Messiah is a greater gulf than between a servant and a master, between a slave and a master. His sandals I'm not worthy so much as to even carry, said John. The voice in the wilderness that Isaiah speaks of ushers in the arrival of God himself. For that's who in Isaiah is coming next. John is that voice in the wilderness. who. So the question then is, who comes after him? Who comes next? Who is it that will judge God's people? Who is it that will save God's people? In Isaiah, it's God. John's message of the coming is the coming of the royal visit of God. Like that of Isaiah, it's a message of comfort and of challenge. The king of kings is about to arrive and visit your house. What an honour. What a privilege. How many people have dreamt of the Queen dropping in for a cup of tea? You know, the Queen's going to visit four houses. How many people have thought, gee, it would be lovely to have her. It would be really interesting to have her. That would be a day I would always remember, the day the Queen turned up. Well, he's going to come and he's going to visit our home. He's coming to save his people. He's coming to bring forgiveness of sins and the end of the punishment of sinners. What a comfort. He's coming to bring an end to corruption. He's coming to institute justice in the land and to destroy the works of evil and the devil. What a wonderful comfort is found in this message. As Isaiah says, comfort, comfort my people. The warfare is over. The iniquity is pardoned. But think about it, friends. Think about it on the other side of comfort. Think about the challenge that comes. The king of kings is about to visit my house and I haven't made the bed. I haven't done the washing up. The king of kings is coming, is about to come into the world and I'm wholly unprepared to meet him. The king of kings is about to judge the world and I'm still living in sinful rebellion against him. The king of kings is about to come, therefore repent change your ways, confess your sins, wash yourself, get ready with such preparation that God in his mercy may forgive you. Repent now while you can before it is too late. Repent in genuine confession and reality for it is God that we are dealing with. Now is the moment of truth when God should come. The message of John was a message of hope and of comfort but also of challenge and of terror. For the message was one of the baptism of the spirit and fire, the message of the winnowing fork, separating the wheat and the chaff for the fire. And the message of John is the same message for today. For notice in this message of John in chapter 3 verse 2, we have precisely the same sermon as Jesus preached turn over the page to chapter 4 verse 17 from that time Jesus began to preach saying 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message of John is the message of Jesus. For Jesus brings the kingdom of heaven. And entry is by the same confession of sins, the same repentance. And what was true in the first century is true in the 21st century. It's bowing the knee in repentance and submission to him, turning our back on our rebellious sinfulness, confessing our sins and asking, yea, pleading for forgiveness. There is a difference between John's day and our day. Because now, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we know that our sins will be forgiven and we know how our sins are forgiven. And we have the assurance of sins forgiven in the crucifixion of our Lord and Saviour and by his resurrection and the pouring out of his spirit into our hearts, making us the sons of Abraham, even our rock-hardened souls can be made again into being the children of Abraham. So we know how, but the message is the same. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the message. It's the message for us today. It's the message of every day. Till the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for everything you have given to us, but above all for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would pray, Father, that by his death and resurrection and by the outpouring of his spirit, that you would touch and change every heart that is here this day in this cathedral, that each one of us would by the death of Jesus deal with our sins, repenting of them, confessing them, bringing them out into the open that you may bring to us forgiveness and pardon, that we may truly be the sons and daughters of Abraham, that we may truly be your sons and daughters, that we may truly be the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that we may be truly ready for that great day when the King comes to this world or he calls us by death into his presence. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.